Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Sean Levine. Now, Sean Levine is the head of endovascular neurosurgery at Columbia University. I've known Sean for uh, 25 years now. He was my chief resident at USC. Uh, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for hosting, and thank you, John Paul, as well. Great, great. Now, Sean, you know, we've known each other so long. You've taught me so much about neurosurgery from, from when I was a second year rounding with you, and I have uh, immense respect for you. Um, you're now in the realm of endovascular uh, neurosurgery, and we've interviewed a number of folks in that subspecialty, which I, I think is really just an amazing place to be. But we wanted to address some very relevant and timely issues. Um, JP and I put together a, a mini-series on coronavirus during the 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 start of the pandemic, and now we're going to come full circle back to the neurosurgical manifestations. At the time, we were really talking about how the crisis impacted neurosurgeons. But today, we'd like to talk about specific disease processes. And in particular, uh, I think we were going to talk about stroke and, and coronavirus. So why don't you uh, give us a, a laydown of the epidemiology and how we arrived at this condition and, and what you've been seeing at Columbia? Sure. Happy to. Thank you again for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, I work in New York City, which, as many people know, is a unique environment and unfortunately a a very poor setup for a virus such as the COVID-19 virus that really thrives on close contact. And as you know, in New York City, we have about 8.5 million people in the five boroughs, and many of those people are on top of each other. There are about 26,000 people per square mile in our area. And uh, that includes several hospitals, 66 hospitals with 10 medical schools. And the unique thing also about New York City is it swells every day by about 4 million people when uh, the commuters come to work and visitors come to New York City. And and most of those, 85%, come by mass transit. So in New York, we were one of the first uh, hot spots in the United States, as is well known, particularly because of that close proximity, and also because we're an international destination. Many flights came from China, many flights came from Europe during the time that the virus was breaking out. So because of that, we saw our first case in March, where many parts of the United States did not see cases uh, you know, for several weeks to even a few months later. And then we became quickly a hotbed Really, first case in March 1st, and by March 22nd, we had already 10,000 cases. So we went on pause at that point, as is well known by our governor, Andrew Cuomo. And uh, at that time, we were inundated with patients. You probably saw on the national news that there were patients uh, really overwhelming our system, particularly in the Queens area. And uh, by By that point, we had to close down all of our elective surgery. We had to create field hospitals in the Javits Center. You probably saw the U.S. uh, Naval ship, the Comfort, came and parked in our harbor. We had uh, field hospitals in Central Park and the U.S. Open Tennis Center in Baker Field. So uh, that's, you know, 
basically the the poor epidemiology and anatomy of New York City that uh, really allowed this explosion. Wow, you know, as we as a nation and, and you know living in all our separate cities currently kind of continue to evolve past the those early and, and most frightening days of the crisis across the country. Um, what a stirring reminder of everything that we went through both as a nation and specifically there in, as you said, the, the hotbed of the infection as it made its way to the states. You know, a, as we read the news, as the crisis evolved, there were these two strains that I particularly would follow where on the one hand, I saw story after story about how Patients were increasingly afraid to come to the hospital for even life-threatening conditions. And so in some instances, we saw the reported incidents of things like heart attacks, things like stroke would drop because patients, even symptomatic patients, would be afraid to come to the hospital. Whereas at the same time, we heard report after report with increasing evidence that this infection led to a prothrombotic cascade and a procoagulant tendency in patients, increasing the risk for disease entities such as stroke. So with those two kind of disparate and maybe conflicting tendencies as the situation developed, what was the experience like on the ground? And, you know, what was the time course of seeing the rate of patients who came in requiring intervention for an acute stroke, either increasing or decreasing as this crisis developed? It's very interesting you ask it in that way, because that's exactly what our experience was. It began with a lull in our thrombectomy cases. And if you spoke to our neurology colleagues, same thing for them. They were not seeing the same number of TPA cases, minor strokes that we had been seeing. Uh, This was true at our hospital in New York Presbyterian Hospital in Columbia, where I work. At the same time, Mount Sinai was reporting this huge uptick in thrombectomies, but they were not regular thrombectomies. They were COVID patients, obviously. Around that time, we were seeing six to 700 people die per day in the city. And predominantly, they're dying from the, you know, from the virus itself in terms of its pulmonary and, you know, cardiac complications. But as you mentioned, we realized that many patients with uh, MI and with stroke were staying home. And we found this out later on as many of those patients ended up coming to our office down the road, seeing them by telemedicine visit. Obviously, we're not seeing many people in person that uh, they were staying home, hoping that their stroke symptoms would go away or the the heart attack symptoms would go away. But then uh, we began to see this surge in thrombectomy volume. And that happened again, probably uh, late April for us and early to mid-April for other boroughs. It was a very interesting epidemiology in the city based borough by borough, depending on the population that was there and how it really spread itself around. So the group at Cornell, which is our sister hospital, New York Presbyterian Cornell rather than Columbia, did publish a paper that hinted at this beginning coagulopathy issue. And they found in their study that uh, about 40% of the patients that had COVID had a coagulopathy of one kind or another. We were hearing anecdotal reports of both arterial and venous system coagulopathy with uh, people presenting with PEs, DVTs, as well as clotting of central lines. Uh, The most common procedure done during this time period was uh, declotting tunnel dialysis catheters. As many of these patients were were losing kidney function, getting these catheters, and and it was really remarkable. 
And, uh, and then we began to see reports come out of hospitals like Mount Sinai, where they were seeing a, a very different population to our general population that we see with uh, acute stroke. So, Sean, that's really interesting. And, and I've heard some stories, maybe you can tell us more about the stroke phenotype. Like, you guys get the benefit of, of doing, uh, you know, three-dimensional imaging like CT angiogram and an angiogram. So you really start to understand stroke, right? Not just, not just the end result, which is the ischemic brain, but what is causing it. How do these strokes look different than your sort of, sort of typical or classic pre-COVID strokes? Well, that's a great question. We, we really began to notice a few things in particular. Number one, a younger age. So our typical age range is 65 and above for these uh, cases. And we are seeing people in their 50s and younger and then we were seeing a couple of other unique features. We actually were fortunate to publish a paper in the uh, Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery about our experience with this, with uh, our first five patients being younger than normal. They had extremely poor NIH stroke scale, and I'll explain why. They uh, had a uh, propensity to have coagulopathies. Every one of our patients had abnormal clotting factors. They all had ROTEM analysis, for those that are familiar with that in the ICU, that, that were wildly abnormal in every single one of these patients. And they had a more significant clot burden. So they had tandem occlusions, occlusions in the same vascular tree, say large thrombus in the, in the carotid artery as well as a large thrombus in the middle cerebral or in the intracranial internal carotid artery. And they uh, occasionally had tandem, uh, or rather occlusions in separate territories. So the carotid distribution, for instance, simultaneous with the uh, posterior circulation. And the patients uh, did not do well in terms of their outcomes. And one of the reasons is the clot was extremely friable and tended to fragment when we used our, our typical procedures, which include either a mechanical thrombectomy with a stent retriever or a suction catheter. So uh, they, we, this was not only our experience. This was then later reported by a large group in France, a combined study by the group at NYU and Jefferson in Philadelphia, just outside the tri-state area, uh, in addition to that report from Mount Sinai. Now, this is fascinating, um, of course, from a, a technical standpoint for all of us here in this conversation. And so as you speak about the technical aspects of retrieving the clots in these COVID-infected patients, I'm curious, let's say we take a hypothetical case of a COVID-infected patient with a stroke who goes for mechanical thrombectomy, and it's, it's a successful procedure. You don't see these COVID-related complications with the procedure itself. What does the post-procedural course look like for that patient? Are these people at higher or greater risk for a complication or for a poor outcome, even assuming that there is no technical uh, downside or, or technical difficulty associated with the infection? Or once the procedure is done, is it just like treating another patient, at least from the stroke side of things? No, absolutely. That was the case due to their other co comorbidities with renal failure, with uh, ARDS, with, you know, uh, um, other infections, super infection with a bacteria on top of their, you know, their pneumonitis. It, uh, these patients did extremely poorly. And even though we were successful in achieving good recanalizations by, by our grading system, they still tended to have very poor outcomes because of their 
other medical comorbidities. Uh, we did have a few success stories, but very few. Sean, that's that's so interesting to hear you you say that. I mean, one would think that it would be a similar scenario. Scenario. Do you think that they're having other, uh, maybe like microthrombi, or what, what do you think is going on? Are you getting to them too late? Because they, they're younger patients, right? So they should be more resilient in terms of the brain, at least, right? You're exactly right. I think they should have done well, but I think what happened is they just had so little reserve. You know, what we rely on predominantly in the endovascular stroke world is collateral supply. And, you know, people have to have good blood pressure. They have to have, you know, good systemic vascular resistance. They have to have, you know, adequate uh, volume load. And these patients were so sick in terms of all those other areas that I believe their collateral flow was very poor. We also saw we do these, uh, you know, these penumbral evaluations with our perfusion software, and they tended to have large deficits very early on in their symptom course. And I think that's uh, probably a combination of all those factors. That's a very interesting perspective to consider um, with these patients. I think one of the most interesting angles on this infection, this virus, is the broad variability in how it can manifest clinically in an individual patient. Obviously, there's been ongoing discussion about what risk factors or comorbidities may make a given patient more susceptible to have a severe course with this infection. But from your side of things and the neurointerventional and neuroendovascular side of things treating these stroke cases, these younger patients, otherwise healthy patients who you're seeing coming in with strokes, are these in general people who are having very severe courses of the COVID infection? Or are you seeing young folks who have the infection without that systemic, very sick, very toxic clinical profile who still have this coagulopathy and this prothrombotic cascade? It's interesting. That is, that's exactly what we saw. We had one you know, very young patient, a 35-year-old woman who was morbidly obese with hypertension and, and uh, type 2 diabetes who had a very mild case of COVID. She did not even know she had it. Her original presentation was the stroke itself, which was an internal carotid artery occlusion just uh, beyond the ophthalmic artery. But uh, she, we, she had a successful thrombectomy and as, as our one patient that did extremely well, but she virtually had no symptoms of COVID whatsoever. Um, in contrast, the other patients that we saw were very sick from their COVID and, uh, and they you know, tended to have multiple medical issues. And they, the theory is this so-called cytokine storm in these younger patients. Some people get it, some people don't. My partner, uh, Sandra Connolly, is looking at this from inflammatory markers in the bloodstream, such as complement, trying to understand who is susceptible to this so-called cytokine storm and why does the virus take such incredible hold of these people and give them wicked systemic involvement as well. And those, those patients with this severe disease just did extremely poorly with extremely high NIH stroke scales to start and then extremely poor uh, modified Rankin scale and very high mortality. Mortality of 60% uh, was reported pretty much across the board in these studies. So, Sean, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's we're recording this podcast on July twenty second of twenty twenty, and our first coronavirus uh, pandemic podcast was was with Greg Mundus. Uh, his parents were hospitalized. He was on the national news. That came out in March twenty fifth. And our last episode, our thirteenth episode, was with Dan Barrow, 
on May 5th. And Dan Barrows, I, you know, I kind of look back and think maybe we had the wrong title for it. It was called the post-COVID landscape. You know, you're, yeah, right. <laughs> you're in New York now. Uh, much of the, the immediate carnage has passed, but are you still seeing these cases? In other words, just because people aren't dying, are you still seeing, as you mentioned, that asymptomatic patient, are you still seeing more of these unusual uh, strokes, uh, you know, in the mildly infected or or people had COVID, you know, two months ago? Are you still seeing that stuff? It's interesting that there has been a shift. So, you know, we still uh, are having cases every day when, you know, we started looking at these patients back in April, we had 135,000 cases in New York City. There are, we're up to 400,000 as of today. And um, we, we've seen a new phenomenon, believe it or not. We've seen a group of patients now a lot of them are post-COVID because we have very few patients in our ICUs anymore with COVID. We don't really have these very sick patients currently. Uh, and I think our treatment approach has also changed, which is a whole nother topic. But, you know, uh, the way that we are treating these people from the medical point of view has changed dramatically. We're not using hydrochloroquine anymore or azithromycin. We were quick to intubate before. Now we're we're doing everything we can not to intubate because we think that causes significant barotrauma and sets up a real, a real poor uh, chance of a meaningful outcome. But now you've probably heard in the news there's another subgroup of patients that have this uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And we are seeing a few patients now, and I've spoke to my colleagues in other centers that are seeing this same phenomenon of patients that have had COVID or over it and they're now presenting with new uh, thrombotic issues and uh, these vasculitic pictures. For instance, these children are having an, uh, a Kawasaki-like syndrome where they're having vasculature attacked by inflammation a month out from their infection. And they're getting skin issues, they're getting heart issues, they're getting uh, you know other issues with stroke. There was some silent strokes found in these patients over at Mount Sinai that were intubated and sedated and they didn't I mean, they weren't even aware that this was happening. And uh, we've seen a few young patients who have uh, gotten over COVID are home and then a month later show up with a stroke. Uh, I have another patient that showed up with a large clot in his heart and an acute coronary thrombosis causing a massive coronary uh, uh, injury, as well as throwing a clot and having, you know, a, a large vessel occlusion in his head. So it's a bit concerning to us now that our, our really acute patients have dropped so dramatically that we're not seeing these acute strokes. We're seeing these delayed, uh, presumably, strokes due to inflammation or thrombotic effects down the road. Well, this is all very fascinating. You know, as Dr. Wang said, we thought we were entering the post-COVID landscape, but that doesn't mean that the disease and the virus is not still out there and, and still, you know, exerting its effect on our patients, even if they're not in florid infection. So perhaps as we draw to an end of this episode, you mentioned before the technical difficulties in, in dealing with clots in these patients. You know, I, I'm in training here at Rush, which is a major stroke center in the Midwest. Uh, Dr. Wang's down at Jackson Memorial, which is the major hospital for millions of people in Miami. Could you give any words of advice to the clinicians, uh, anyone working in the, in the stroke field, uh, certainly interventionally, for any way that you treat these patients 
differently if you suspect or know that this is a COVID-associated stroke or any kind of COVID-associated vascular phenomenon as they come through the door. Obviously, the, the intensive care side of things, the medical care side of things that you mentioned, um, that's constantly evolving. But from a, from a neurologic standpoint, from a procedural standpoint, even you there in New York, you folks have had more reps than the rest of us in the country. Are there any insights or pearls you could share with us for when these patients hit our doors? Yes, it's interesting. We, you know, are, we are expecting the worst when we have a patient that has a COVID stroke. You know, before mm-hmm. we just thought it was going to be our routine half an hour you know, suction thrombectomy or, or stent retriever case. But when we get the word that we have a patient who's either COVID or suspected COVID, uh, we're prepared for significant proximal thrombectomy. And we've changed in certain ways using larger bore guiding catheters. Uh, uh, making sure that we're we're seeing the entire circulatory system, because uh, one of our patients did not have a posterior circulation occlusion on on the original CTA between the CTA and the time they got to the uh, to the uh, neurointerventional theater, they had developed a posterior circulation um, occlusion as well. So our our thoughts now are to do a full angiogram on everybody, be prepared that they may have a proximal thrombus, and we're also more likely to use suction thrombectomy rather than a stent retriever as our frontline approach because we did see a significant amount of fragmentation with our mechanical thrombectomies done with stent retrievers. So our frontline, I know everyone has their preference for how you treat these is suction thrombectomy both in the cervical region as well as once we move up towards the intracranial uh, space. Hmm. Well, I think our listeners can get a, a feel for the technical nuances and, and the difficulty of, of doing these procedures, Sean. My hat's off to you. I, I also want to give a shout out to your, your beautiful wife, Lena, who's been such a good friend and mentor to my wife, Amy. And um, I want to thank you for for being such a great mentor to me. You were my chief resident as well as Udi Mandel uh, at USC. Uh, Everybody who knows about USC knows the chief and junior relationship is especially tight. You've taught me uh, probably more about neurosurgery than just about anybody. So I want to thank you for the time and the difficulties that I caused you as a junior resident. Um, And congratulations on having been CV section chair and accomplished so much at Columbia University. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure for me to follow you and your career and your success in Miami and in the spine world. And you make us uh, proud every day to be a USC alumni. And uh, John Paul, thank you for your thought-provoking questions. This was really an enjoyable experience, and I uh, hope to do it on a much happier topic someday in in the near future. 